Amen. The Bible teaches that before Jesus Christ returns, there are many signs. But one of the signs is this, that lawlessness will increase. Now, there's always been lawlessness, someone, people who break the law, okay? That's why we have prisons, uh, because of people that break the law. But the Bible says it's going to get super bad before Jesus comes in the rapture and in the return. Would you not agree the last 10 years we have seen an explosion of lawlessness? I mean an absolute explosion with all the riots and stuff and no one is ever punished for those kind of, kind of things. Um, you hear politicians talk about defund the police. Are you crazy? I mean, I, they talk about sending out social workers. I could just see a social worker going up to a bank robber. Excuse me, do you, did you get this from your childhood? Okay, we, we, you know, that's the kind of crazy mentality. And that's what happens when you take all moral restraints off a nation. That's what happens when you reject God is you have all these crazy laws and you have all these crazy uh, lawbreakers. Uh, the, you can see videos now of people who, uh, like in San Francisco, a, a gang of 20 people run into a, a store, rob it blind, and the security guard's just sitting there. And for some reason, you know, you kind of, I mean, one against 20, that's kind of tough. But it's like they do nothing about it. There is lawlessness everywhere. And now we've even got, before the law has been totally passed, People hear about that road versus way might be overturned. And really what people don't understand is all that does, it doesn't stop abortion. It just sends the decisions back to the states and lets the people decide, not the uh, people up top. It goes back more to the people and more to the local level. But people are going crazy about that. They're protesting and giving death threats and stuff to Supreme Court justices and nobody is doing anything about it. And so we see this incredible lawlessness that's happened. People just ignoring the law. Politicians ignoring what's on the books to enforce it. But you know, there's one law that's been around since the beginning of time that people tend to ignore more than any other law. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. That if you disobey one of God's commands, it's going to come back on your head. Every time. Now usually it doesn't come back immediately. It usually comes back later. You may sow some seeds when you were in your teenage years, but you may not reap of them until you're in your early 20s. But one thing's for sure, you are going to reap what you sow. And that is the number one law that people have ignored. Now look at Josh, uh, Joshua, Job 4.8. Look what it says. Job 4.8 uh, in your bulletin there. According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble... Harvest it. If you put uh, watermelon seeds in the ground, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get watermelon, right? You sow trouble in the ground, you're going to get trouble later on. It doesn't happen immediately, but it'll eventually happen in your life. 
Now look at, look at this, Jeremiah 2.9. Hey, you know what brought, brought me back to the Lord? It's this verse right here. Not, not that I read it or knew anything about it, but this principle is what God used to bring me back to Him. Jeremiah 2.19. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. So you know what there is? There is, take a look at the screen, there is a disaster of disobedience. There is a disaster of disobedience. Now certainly we can be forgiven for disobedience, but think about this. You as a Christian might decide and might be tempted to cut corners on your taxes. You can cut corners on your taxes as a Christian. You can be forgiven, but you might go to jail. You might pay some fines because there's a disaster of disobedience. Um, you might have an adulterous affair. You can be forgiven like David was, but there are still consequences to that. You can use your, lose your family and your finances, and hey, you could even lose your life if if uh, her husband finds, <laughs> finds out, you know, he may kill you. Uh, so uh, there is a law of so sowing and reaping, just like the law of gravity. If I were to take this right here and uh, I were to let it fall, that's the law of gravity. You cannot violate that, okay? Even when you get a plane up in the air for a while, it's got to come down. It's not going to stay up there. And so there's that law that's going to happen that we've got to not ignore because there's a disaster to disobedience. Now, when I go to Ash Flat, you know, I live all, off uh, behind Church Street in Horseshoe Bend. And uh, there are three ways I can get to Ash Flat, okay? I can go the Glencoe Way. I can go what I call the Middle Way. You know, it's a real curvy road uh, that ends up near Second Chance. Or I can even travel down here and go that way to Ash Flat. And do you know what I found out? If you look on Google, Google Maps and you make out the direction, those three ways are usually just within two or three minutes distance of one another. So I, I'm the kind of person who gets bored. So I go one way and come back another way, you know, just to kind of vary it up a, a little bit. Mostly I go middle way and Glencoe way, but, you know, I like to vary it up a little bit. Well... There are three ways to ask flat. But you know what happens? When we sow and sin and trouble and lawlessness, there is only one way, and that way is down. Ask Jonah. <laughs> he went down in the ship and down in the whale. I mean, in the whale, right? There's only one way when you disobey God, and that is the way down. Now, this is what happened to a man in the Bible, King David. He is one of the most godly men who ever lived. He wrote uh, the book of Psalms, which is kind of like the hymn book of the Old Testament. Godly, godly man. And when he was supposed to be somewhere, he decided to stay home. He's supposed to be out on the battlefield. He decided to stay home, and I've seen kind of the area uh, where this happened, and you could, I can just picture it in my mind, but he's sitting home uh, while all of his men are sacrificially giving of himself. He's sitting at home, probably in his lounge chair or his hammock, 
And uh, he's sitting there smoking a cigar and drinking probably some lemonade. And he looks out, and all of a sudden, there is this woman sunbathing. And I'm sure he went, okay? And so he decides, hey, who's that woman right there? She's good looking. Now, he already had a bunch of wives, which that, that should have got him in trouble anyway. You know, I don't know why he didn't catch it that time. But anyway, so he calls for her. He ends up, she's married lady. They end up having uh, physical relationships with one another. She gets pregnant. And, uh, you know, uh, they, uh, uh, and so when he finds out she's pregnant, he's like, oh my goodness, I mean, I'm the king. I don't want anybody to find out about this. So he had her husband come home from the battlefield and try to get him to sleep with his wife so they could blame the child on him. He wouldn't do it. He was loyal to the king. And finally the king said, put him uh, on the front of the battle lines and have him killed. So he committed adultery and he committed premeditated murder. And it was after this, for nine months... He understood the disaster of disobedience. It was eating his lunch, his conscience. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how David got right with God, how he teaches us about the disaster of disobedience, and how he got right with God. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me is this. The consequences of disobedience. This passage clearly spells out what happens when a Christian gets away from God. Now, you may, not, you may not go out and commit some horrible sin like David did, a premeditated murder or adultery, but the principles are the same of any sin in your life that you allow and you coddle and leave there when God has dealt with you about that sin and you won't deal with it. Now, the first thing it does, what sin does, it soils the soul. That means it makes you feel spiritually dirty. Now, look what he says here in 51 verse 1 there, in the red uh, on the right top of the page, on the inside. Now, let's just uh, do this, and I want you to circle some words as I tell you to do this, all right? Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion. Now, I want you to circle these two words. Blot out. Circle that. Blot out my transgressions. All right? Circle these two words. Wash me. Circle that. Thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me. Circle that. Cleanse me. Verse 7. Purify me. Circle that with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Circle be clean. Wash me, circle, wash me, and I shall be, circle, whiter than snow. Now, do you get it? The Holy Spirit repeats something in different ways to try to get your attention. Because, listen, you know what David said when he wanted to get right with God? Blot out, wash me, cleanse me, purify me, so I'm be clean, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Because what that tells us is when we disobey God, one of the consequences is we feel dirty. We feel dirty. One of the, when people are doubting their salvation, one of the things I tell them is when you sin, does it bother you? When you sin, does it make you feel dirty? 
and, 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 and you just feel uncomfortable with sin? Do you know, we, we have that cat that I told you in our house that's demon-possessed and does not like me. And uh, I was amazed one day. You know, she had never grown up going outside or had never seen another kitten herself. She lives inside. And Peyton one time put the... Now, she's about a year old now. Peyton one time took his phone and turned on the sound of a little kitty, I mean a little one, meowing. And you know what she did? By instinct, nothing else, she went over there and put that phone in her mouth and started carrying that little kitty around in that phone, okay? That is instinct for a cat to do. Isn't that amazing? She's never had any kind of, uh, she's not modeling anything. That's her instinct. Let me tell you something. You know what the instinct of a pig is? You ever heard a pig as happy as a uh, uh, pig as happy as in the mud? You know, a pig in the mud is so happy and everything like that. And you can just see a pig, you know, you know, just doing that and just grinning and everything. You can see that a pig's nature is to get in mud, but a sheep's nature is that it doesn't want to be in mud. It wants to get out. It wants to get clean, and obviously. Uh, if, if a farmer saw a pig in the mud, wouldn't think any about it, anything about it. But if it's got a, he's got a sheep in the mud, he knows he's got to get in there and get that thing out of it. You know what the Bible says? We are the sheep of his pasture. And so the nature of a sheep, the instinct of a sheep is it may fall in the mud, but it doesn't want to stay in the mud because sin soils the soul. Here's the next things that sin does. Consequent, it saturates the mind. It saturates the mind. Now, you're going to do some writing today, okay? Look what he says uh, in Psalm 51, verse 3. For I know, circle I know, my transgressions. And circle this, my sin is ever before me. You see, I believe that when David did that, even though he kept silent for nine months, God kept bringing it to his mind. You did it, look what you did, you disobeyed me, you got to get right. And it was just constantly on his mind wherever he turned. And again, that's one of the signs of someone who's a Christian, is God will not let them rest until they get right with him about this. You, I mean, you may ignore it, but God will still keep bringing it up, bringing it up, and bringing it up. You'll sing a song, it's in the song. You hear a sermon, it's in the sermon. You turn on the radio, it's on the radio about how you need to get right with that. It saturates the mind. That's what sin does. Now, look at Psalm 32. Let me get back to this, okay? Um, where did I go? Here in the black, okay? These are verses that are not part of that passage. Look at Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. They think this may also be related to that incident. I don't know, but it's written by David. Nonetheless, it's still true. Look at Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Now watch this. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. 
Finally, I confess my sins to you and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. Hallelujah. All my guilt is gone. <laughs> okay. Because David got tired of the mind, just the sin coming back over and over. You've got to get right about this. Now, here's another thing that sin does, a consequence to it. It steals the joy. It steals the joy. Look at Psalm 51, verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. So he's like, God, restore the joy. I've lost the joy. He couldn't sing. I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart right now. He couldn't sing that old camp song from youth camp because he lost his joy. You know who the most miserable people on earth are? It's not people in Hollywood. It is not people who are in the prison system. The most joyless people on earth are Christians who once walked with God and they're not walking with Him now and because God said He will put His hand on you and when He does, He's going to squeeze the joy out of you until you get right with Him. God has not fixed you. When you become a Christian, God's not fixed you where you will not sin. Have you noticed that? When you got saved, you still have to struggle against sin. God has not fixed you where you will not sin, but God has fixed you to where you will not where you will sin, excuse me, you will not sin and enjoy it anymore. All right? Now here's another thing. It stops the power. That's what sin does. Look what he says in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That is a heart that has the strength and desire and the power to want to obey God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence. You see, when you're in God's presence, you have God's power. When you're out of God's presence, you don't have the power. It stops the... Um, he says, do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Sin produces more sin. It breaks down our resistance to temptation. The more you sin, the easier it will be to do more sin. It's what I call the proverbial avalanche. You know, one little snowball can get a whole avalanche to going and it's hard, listen to this, the more you sin, the harder it is to stop it because it's building up that momentum. And when, and when it does, it just overtakes your life. Even if you don't express it, it overtakes your mind. It stops the power. Then here's another thing it does. It sours the spirit. It sours the spirit. Because you know what happened to David after he kept quiet about this, this thing? Listen, God, the Bible says everything is open and God sees it. He knows everything. Nobody knew about this except him and Bathsheba. Nobody else. But God knew about it and he sent a prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan the prophet. 
And he went to David and says, King, let me tell you a story. There was this rich man who had a bunch of sheep. And then there's this poor man who had this one little tiny lamb. And the rich man found out that he was going to have company. And so instead of taking of all his sheep, he decided to go to the poor man and rob him of his little lamb that he had nurtured since it was just a little tiny lamb. Now it's still a little lamb. And the king said, who did this? David said, who did such a thing? I'm telling you, he ought to be put to death for what he did. And then Nathan, I imagine Nathan had, don't you imagine Nathan had a finger this long like that? Put it in front of David's face. Thou art the man. Now isn't this something? The first thing that came out of David's mind when he was backslid on God, he was extremely critical. He was, it was easy for him to judge other people. Sometimes the most negative, critical people are religious people who are not in fellowship with God. The people, listen, let me let you in on a little secret. The people in church that complain most about the money usually are people who don't tithe. The, the people who complain most in church and are always bitter, I want to say to them, what sin are you hiding in your life? Because sin sours the Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus told one fellow, he said, uh, before, now I'm going to translate this into the King Jeff version, okay? Before you go picking out toothpicks in somebody else's eyes, get that two by four out of your eye. Then you'll be able to go and help that fellow get the toothpick out of his eye. In other words, you better deal with your sin because your sin is clouding your perspective and therefore you are judgmental toward other Christians. It sours the spirit. Then here's another thing it does. Now see, this is right out of Scripture. Is this not cool? I mean, the Bible just tells us why uh, disobeying God is a disaster. The disaster of disobedience. Here's the next thing it does. It seals the lips. It seals the lips. Now look in uh, 51 verse 13. It seals it from witnessing. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. Hey, when you're living in sin, it's hard to witness to people because you don't have any confidence in your mind. You're not going with confidence and boldness to witness to people. And David said, when I get right with God, I'll start soul winning again because it sealed his lips. I think it was Andrew Murray who said this, there are two types of Christians, soul winners and backsliders. Then also it seals your lips from worshiping. Look in, in Psalm 51 verse 15. Oh Lord, open my lips. Why? Because his lips were closed. That my mouth may declare thy praise. Now, listen, you can go to church. I'm, I'm sure David still got on his harp and started playing Psalm 23. Or all these psalms. Nobody knew any different. But he knew. The lips of his heart were closed. You and I can sing songs like this morning that we sang, tell it to Jesus. But you're not telling it to Jesus because you're hiding from Jesus. State upon Jehovah. My mind is fixed upon Jehovah. No, it's not. It's fixed upon your sin because God keeps bringing it back to your mind. 
It seals the lips. Listen to what Tozer said. If your life does not worship God, your lips do not worship God either. All right, now here's the next thing, because, you know, uh, this is a message of warning, but it's a message of encouragement, because, listen, here's how I can encourage, encourage you. Aren't you glad God, God doesn't leave you alone in the mud? Aren't you glad that God does some things actively to get you right with Him and to get back into His blessings? Aren't you glad that when you look at this list, if you're doubting your salvation, but yet you see when you sin, it soils your soul, it saturates your mind, it's stealing the joy, it stops the power, it sours the spirit, it seals the lip. Listen, if you see that happening in your life when you disobey, thank God for that. That shows you're truly a Christian. He leaves the pigs along. He deals with the sheep. Amen. So here's the cure for disobedience. And it's still found in this text. I mean, I love the Bible. I mean, it just spells it out for you. Now, here's the first thing you need to do is you need to agree with God about your sin. That's the word confession. Look in Psalm 51.4. Now, you talk, this is the greatest confession in the Bible. Remember what he's done. He's committed adultery and premeditated murder. He's kept quiet about it and probably tried to justify it. And here's what he said. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. Now, wait a minute, David. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against her husband by killing him. And you sinned against the nation by hiding it. But you know what? David truly understand that all sin is ultimately against God. And so he says, God, ultimately, I've sinned against you. And then he says, and I've done what is evil in thy sight. So that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Hey, David had a wake-up time. He had a come-to-Jesus moment. He, he just said, God, no more rationalizations. You're right. I'm wrong. This is evil what I did. Do you know the word confession in the Greek is the word, now this is important, okay? It's the word homo legeo. Homo legeo. Now here, here's the reason why I tell you that. You know, homo, you know, we have homosexuals, same sex, right? Homo means the same. Legeo comes from the Greek word logos. You ever heard of that? Jesus is the logos, the word, okay? So the homo legeo means the same word. That's what true confession is. It, it, is that you no, no longer try to justify the sin. Well, I'm a weak man. All men are going to do that. You know, we're all going to fail sometime. You know, and you know, you, nobody's perfect. And then you start saying, you know what? I'm tired of this. No more games with God. God, you're right. I'm wrong. That's evil. I've let it become something out of control in my life, and I'm absolutely sick of it. And I tell you, God, you're right, I'm wrong. Now, there's a great difference between saying that and just admitting sin, okay? I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, right? And then later on, indeed I did. <laughs> okay, that is admitting sin, okay? And that's just one of example among many examples because there's Republicans that do the same thing. That is admitting sin. That's not confessing sin. You know, 
uh, yep, I did it. There it is. That's not confession. Confession's when you get over here where God is, and you're like, God, you're right. I'm wrong. This is evil in my life. I need you to get it out of me because it's soiling my soul. It's saturating my mind. It's stealing the joy. It's stopping the power. It's souring my spirit, and it's sealing my lips. And I'm tired of this. All right, now here's the next thing. And it, 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 these two go hand in hand. They're like two sides of a coin. Abandon the sin with genuine sorrow. That's the word repentance. Now, this doesn't mean you have to cry over your sin. Many times that will happen. But you know Johnny Hunt, my favorite preacher, greatest preacher, I think, <laughs> Other than Adrian Rogers, the greatest preacher, I think, of today. And when he got saved as a 20-year-old young man, he, he didn't. I mean, what, this is so funny. Every Sunday, when God, they, a, a man kept inviting him to church and inviting him to church and inviting him to church, finally he just wanted to get the guy off his back and showed up at church. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of him every single week. And Johnny would cry during the worship service. And you know what? Johnny said, Lord, I'm going to go forward tonight to get saved. But help me not to cry. Johnny Hunt went forward, grabbed the preacher's hand, said, I need to get saved tonight. Not a tear in his eyes. And he got saved. It's not based on tears in your eyes. It's based on tears in your heart. There is a sorrow. You know what the Bible says? That there is a godly sorrow that produces repentance. Not a worldly sorrow. Indeed, I did. I'm going to lose the presidency. There's a worldly sorrow. There's a godly sorrow where it's broken your heart because you've broken God's heart. And that word repentance means this. It means a change of mind. Again, this goes back to confession. Which leads to a turning and a change of behavior. That's what repentance means. Look at Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Now, I saw this this week, and this is kind of like the average one of us. We've all been there. Who wants blessings? Everybody raised their hand. Who wants to repent? Nobody. Right? <laughs> But if we're going to stop the disaster of disobedience, we've got, we've got to confess it and repent of it. Let's bow for a word of prayer.